This is an ABC podcast. If not at 70% and 80%, then when? Would Australia be closer to reopening if the Prime Minister had not failed his two jobs on vaccine and quarantine? Unfortunately, in the background, actions are still proving that they don't get it. Nobody is telling us exactly what's involved in the plan. Australia seems to have left it far too late to help those who helped us. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Frank Kelly, joining you from the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And soon we're going to be joined in the party room by David Crow, Chief Political Correspondent for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. And PK, we're going to be talking national security primarily with David because this week the Morrison government has really gone for broke. They've thrown everything they can at Labor to try and depict Anthony Albanese and his front bench as, as a weak link when it comes to keeping Australia safe, whether it's with China or let's say, New Zealand gangs. Anthony Albanese likes to talk about, well, whose side is he on? Well, he's clearly on the side of criminals. Um, and if that's what the side he wants to choose, well, he can explain that to the Australian people. That was the Prime Minister, PK, uh, talking about a bill the government introduced this week, or shall I say reintroduced. They've had three cracks at it, I think. They've been trying for a while. It's called the Deportation Bill, and it would the whole point of it is to make it easier for the government to deport foreign-born criminals. PK, that came after the Prime Minister had accused the Labor leader of appeasing China. It's really been an all-or-nothing week for the government this week, hasn't it? Is it going to work? Uh, the question of if it's going to work is, is a really key one, right? Clearly their strategy is to just keep hammering this over and over and over again and to ignore the various warnings which we're about to get to uh, from people who are incredibly senior and uh, strategic thinkers who have uh, a lot of the knowledge on this interference. Warning, do not go there. Keep the bipartisanship on foreign affairs and on national security, which we've seen. Um, Very, very senior, important figures intervening this week. But the government's ignoring it because clearly they've made... an estimation, a decision, and it's clear from Peter Dutton to the Prime Minister, we've seen this in uh, play out in question time and beyond in interviews, that they have made the, the decision that on this issue they want to hammer the, the, the idea that Anthony Albanese is a weak leader. So they want people to know that Anthony Albanese is, for instance, from the left and has previously had views on on um, you know being troubled by turning boats back and various other national security issues to paint him in this way. And there's a reason for this, Fran. Their own focus groups are telling them that, yes, they are in trouble, but that people don't know enough about Anthony Albanese. So it's like they're colouring in, like there's a colouring in book and they've got all of their derwents out and they're colouring him in. Uh, they're trying to paint a picture mm. of him as being weak on these issues so that eventually, if you hear it enough, you know, Anthony Albanese is weak on China. Doesn't matter what the facts are. I mean, I think they matter, don't get me wrong, but they think it doesn't really matter. What you think is this guy can't be trusted. And so when you're voting, you think we can't take the risk right now. Isn't that kind yeah, of that- what this strategy is? 
Yeah, that's what it's all about. As you say, he's a blank canvas. They're colouring him in before Anthony Albanese gets the chance to do it himself, which he hasn't really got. An election campaign, of course, is where the opposition leader gets to do that. But, PK, the, the, the difference here, I mean, this is, you know, I've said this a million times before on, on, on the party room, Scott Morrison it really runs a lot of his political strategies right out of the John Howard playbook, and this is it again. But this time there are, as you, as you mentioned, very significant national security figures pushing back. I mean, it doesn't get more significant than the current ASIO Director-General, Mike Burgess. He couldn't make himself any clearer. First he fronted estimates with a message to politicians not to politicise national security, and then a few days later doubled down with an interview with Lee on 7.30 when he said this politicisation of national security isn't helpful. PK, then again, you spoke with the former director of ASIO, Dennis Richardson. He was even stronger because he's, he's no longer in the game, so he can be, and even clearer uh, that this is not on. It's not helpful to, um, you know, paint a picture of the opposition in a way that is actually not uh, where they're at in terms of their policy positions. He said this, we haven't seen a, an effort at politicisation like this of national security in decades. And he must have been referring there, I think, to that 2001 election, which was dubbed the Kharki election, with John Howard against the backdrop of 9-11, ran a campaign based on terrorism keeping our borders safe. You know, there was the Tampa, there were allegations of terrorists coming in boats disguised as asylum seekers, which, you know, was not true. And then there was the infamous slogan, we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. John Howard painted Labor as soft on terror. More importantly, he managed to persuade the voters. Don't forget, before the um, before 9-11 and the Tampa, Labor had been ahead of the, the coalition, the Howard government in the polls for many, many months, maybe even a year. Suddenly that all dropped away. John Howard draping himself in the flag, surrounding himself with soldiers dressed in khaki, you know, managed to to reassert this as a threat. People were nervous because of what had happened uh, on 9-11 in the US. The terror threat was very stark and quite a new one really for us. It would not be dissimilar to if there ended up being war in Ukraine, for instance, that would be a frightening um, backdrop for all of us. Um, and so this kind of talk would, would resonate more. Right now, though, I think these interventions by the, the national security chiefs and former chiefs are quite stark. And I, I do wonder, even though, as I say, Scott Morrison is a close student of the Howard years and the tactics, whether they're worried about being sort of pushed back so hard by the reigning national security chiefs. Yeah, because it is. Let's just talk about how significant the intervention, particularly from current Director General Mike Burgess is. Not once, but twice at least this week, right? Incident estimates and then making the decision to go on 7.30, mm. right? That Which is, is very not, rare. It's not a decision they make lightly. He made the decision because he wanted to put this again on the public record and it was a warning shot. And I think that that was an important intervention and it just demonstrates, I think, the strength of our institutions and the autonomy and the independence of, mm. of these figures. And I think that's great for our country, can I say. But the big question is, will the politicians, um, you know, Scott Morrison, namely Peter Dutton and others, will they listen? And so far, there's no evidence of that. Whether they're feeling nervous privately, well, hopefully they're listening because uh, I think the, the warning is that China will exploit this. That is a serious warning, right? This isn't just, uh, it's not a nice thing to do. You know, it's, it's not, it's not lovely. It's not, it's that this 
country that we are saying that this this regime that is growing and you know is increasingly muscular, anti-democratic, this is the way it's been framed, is going to exploit our domestic uh, disunity or, or the sort of having this go, go on is really this serious is not stuff. An em- well, it's not an empty threat. I mean, we've seen what Russia did in the US elections in past. We know this is happening. Um, you know, it's already been noted that the Global Times, for instance, which is a, a Chinese communist English language newspaper, let's call it propaganda outfit, you know, it's already uh, published, republished an article from a former Australian diplomat, Bruce Haig, which, you know, talks up Anthony Albanese as Prime Minister. So that feeds into that talk from the from the Prime Minister. He was very stark in question time. Again, even though he'd been warned before, he, he, he actually stood in question time and he said, there was only one side of politics that's demonstrated its resolve to deal strongly with China. And I can tell you the arbiter of that is the Chinese government themselves, who's picked their horse and he's sitting right there as he was pointing across the dispatch box at Anthony Albanese. So, you know, it's really, um, really, uh, China is making no secret of it. It is true that this will happen, but is it true that that Labor is the weak link? Well, as national security leaders from the top down are saying there is no sign of that, there is no evidence of that, they are not saying that and they wish the government would basically back off on this. PK, it's really... It couldn't be a more serious message. It couldn't really be a more serious political fray. We're going to discuss it more shortly with David. But, of course, let's not forget, there's been a whole week. A week is a long time in politics, as I say, and this week started like this. Take me to the April sun in Cuba. Oh, thank heavens for that. <laughs> that was plenty enough. That was Scott Morrison, of course, at home with the family for 60 Minutes. Probably got more column inches than it deserved, BK, this story. It's not that unusual for Prime Ministers and their wives and families to front up for the telly as we're getting towards an election campaign. And let's face it, it feels like we're in one already. It's the start of a charm offensive. Um, Scott Morrison needs a charm offensive. The polls aren't going his way. Is this going to do it? Oh, <laughs> Look, is it going to do it? Nah, just just zooming out. It's pretty standard, right, before an election campaign that you get leaders, both sides of politics, trying to do these softer kind of profile pieces on themselves, their families, you know, to resell themselves to the electorate or to start selling themselves if they're new. So it's not unusual. He hasn't done anything un- unconventional or, or odd. Uh, I think, though, that the framing around his wife, and I don't know whether it was 60 Minutes' decision or his offices or a combination of both, I would say, his wife as being the secret weapon, I think is just a little overblown personally. Like, you know, yes, his wife might might be sort of in focus group showing that she's quite uh, likeable and popular perhaps, but, you know, you don't get to vote for his wife, you vote for him and his policies. That's the way politics works. Did she soften the Prime Minister? Probably it helped a little. I don't think it did enormous damage to him. But I did think some of the things that she had to say were the sorts of things that he wants to say but he can't say. And I thought that was more interesting. So I'll give you an example. The the criticism she she made in, in a, you know, sort of using the language of politeness and manners about Grace Tame not smiling at the 
Lodge. Mm. I thought that was really interesting because, firstly, she did smile at Jenny Morrison, so I was a bit frustrated that that um, that question wasn't asked. Maybe it got cut. I don't know. But, you know, she did actually smile at Jenny Morrison. She didn't smile at the Prime Minister. She thought that, yeah, she was impolite. That's something that the PM probably wanted to say. Couldn't because uh, the politics probably wouldn't have allowed him to have said that. She Certainly said it. Certainly not. Yeah. And then she apologised for taking the family to Hawaii, which I personally was like, what? Why do you have to apologise? He was the leader, but there was sort of this this underhanded, uh, this line I felt, uh, what do you think, which is, you know, well, she'd put the pressure on him to go to Hawaii, you know. Um, it was her. I don't know. It's not her job. Uh, it was him that, that made that decision. He's the Prime Minister again. Um, yeah, now, it so- was one of those moments, wasn't she, where she was sort of, well, well, it was inviting us all to think, oh, yeah, how do families work? Um, maybe she said after a long year, oh, we really, the kids really need this holiday. You know, so I think it was sure. in that vein. Um, is so, it her job um, to apologise? No, but I think it was a, an attempt to sort of just kind of write that, write that wrong, if you like. I don't know. My wife said to me, can you please spend more time at home? And I'm like, there's a really big story going on. I have to cover it or whatever. I've done that many summers. So. <laughs> and I'm not the Prime Minister. Sorry, but, you know, like I just don't think she that passes my pub test, uh, my private pub, and maybe the pub pub's listening to us right now. I don't think it was her job to have to apologise um, for the family going to Hawaii. So that's yeah, my well. take. But either way, does she bigger, broad, broaden out? They're just the specific questions. But does she soften his image? I think she probably does a little bit. She shows, especially also the girls sitting around them having having a meal. You know, they're just kids cringing at their dad. Pretty standard stuff, right? Like most kids cringe at their parents. That's, that's pretty normal. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think it, you know, Will Jenny Morrison going on the campaign trail with Scott Morrison help the Prime Minister? Yes, I think it will because it relaxes him and I've seen that with a number of of political leaders on the campaign trail over the years. It usually does help them because it it settles them, (laughs) if you like, and it humanises them and I think I have no doubt that the polling on Jenny Morrison is very strong. On that note, PK, I think it's time to bring in David. What do you reckon? Yeah, look, the polling on him is very strong too. David Crow, Chief Political Correspondent for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Welcome to the party room. Great to be back, Patricia, Fran. That, um, I'm relaxed already after hearing that intro. We're, we're <laughs> relaxing people to hang out with. That's Fran and I. That's our whole shtick. Um, look, we've been talking about the government's line of attack, not so relaxing, on national security this week. The Prime Minister accused Labor of appeasing China and of being soft and weak and not to be trusted when it comes to Australia's national interest. Here's what Scott Morrison said in Question Time this week. It is not a time for having an each-way bet on national security, Mr Speaker. It is not a time, Mr Speaker, for appeasement and the trading away of Australian values in search of appeasement, Mr Speaker. It is a time, Mr Speaker, to work with our partners, as our government has done. So, David, do you think there's a danger this line of attack could backfire on the government? Because they're really, you know, cranking it up to 11. They are cranking it up to 11, and the only thing that they could do to turn it up to 12 would be to just use the word treason and just to go all the way. I mean, it's... There's an element, and we've been talking about this in the press gallery, there's an element where it's um, desperate, it's shameless, uh, it's sounding shrill, um, and that's certainly been the tone for the week uh, with the Manchurian candidate line and so forth. 
And it can backfire because it does sound totally over the top. However, I'm really a bit cautious about the consensus, which I think is a broad consensus, that it's, that it's over the top. Because we do know that scare campaigns have been over the top in the past, but scare campaigns mm. have worked in the past. And so I don't dismiss this one. I don't think that it's possible to make a judgment now that it's backfiring on the government because we are yet to see how it plays out and how bad it gets in the election campaign. I think yeah, that is, I agree with I've that. Been, we've been talking, for instance, about, about John Howard's attacks on Labor in 2001 before Tampa. We've been talking in the press gallery about history here and John Howard, for instance, and his attacks on Labor in 2001 before September 11, after Tampa, where he was going after Labor for being weak on border security. Now, that was a totally full-on scare campaign. You could argue, was that going to rebound on the government? Well, I think it actually worked for the government. So I'm cautious about um, making a judgment about how this is going to play out politically to one side's advantage or the other. Oh, David, I mean, it, certainly that's, that, that attack from John Howard did work. I mean, I, I will never forget, I was sitting in the gallery uh, in the parliament that night when the Tampa debate occurred and the laws were brought in and Kim Beasley stood up against the extension, the expansion of the laws at that point. And I'll never forget the look on his press secretary's face after that session coming around to our desk and they just looked crestfallen. They knew at that point... It almost looked to me like they knew they'd lost the election, that they'd they, certainly lost any advantage. It was that clear. And they hadn't been given time and it was totally unfair where the demand was put on Labor, you've got to decide now. There was a sense of urgency, but that's how it played out. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be exactly the same this time, but that's why I'm a bit wary. Yeah, wary, absolutely, because we've seen we've seen this movie before, but Sometimes movies can change, right? There's a few plot changes, and one mm. of the movie plot changes is, I think, and I was around then too, not 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 as senior as Fran, but I was, a, I was, you know, baby journalist covering these things, and I do remember that I don't remember seeing this chorus of denouncement from the senior security heads like we're seeing at the moment. Hasn't that shifted the script? Well, I think the Mike Burgess interview. Plus the comments from people like Dennis Richardson, experienced stable hands on foreign policy and national security, are really significant interventions. I mean, Mike Burgess going on 7.30 and saying it's unhelpful for the government to be using these lines is incredibly significant and incredibly rare. It really was a must-watch interview that I mm. think will shape the way this debate's conducted. Do you think it will change the way the government behaves from now on because it, his appearance before Senate estimates didn't change it. Um, you know, is the government willing to risk the backing of the security agencies here and keep going on this? I think they're willing to take a lot of risks. I think that they have got a plan that they think will win them the election and I think they're going for broke and I think that they are throwing everything at Labor and I don't see many outside forces uh, stopping them as long as they think it's working in the electorate. I mean, we, we are yet to see how it all plays out because, for instance, this week we've not only had China, we've had a, um, a challenge to Labor on the immigration question, on the character test. These are all things where um, some of what the government wants to do against Anthony Albanese will play out on social media, not in the, um, in the mainstream media. And so mm -hmm. I think that they are determined um, to keep going after Labor on this. Yeah, but, but interestingly, Labor, you know, you talked about the Kim Beasley historical context. It's important, right? 
but Labor's been... They, they've been trying to avoid the wedge, right? They're onto it because they've seen this movie before. Is that going to help them or are they just going to seen it, be seen by their own base as sellouts? I think it will help them. I think that they succeeded last week in the religion debate on refusing the wedge from the government. And Anthony Albanese kept the Labor caucus unified on very difficult questions of social policy where they didn't go as far as many wanted them to go but they stood their ground on the transgender amendment in Parliament and then they saw that five Liberals crossed the floor. That strategy worked for Anthony Albanese. This week on the character test, uh, faced with a difficult question, they've made a pragmatic decision to let that through the House, even though they have been copying criticism from the Greens from the crossbench for agreeing to something that some people see as unnecessary. But they've been pragmatic. And I think... They are ready for the scare campaigns. I don't think that means that the scare campaigns are neutralised, but I do think it means that um, Anthony Albanese is seeing them coming and is adjusting accordingly. Now, this week, the Morrison government confirmed legislation for a federal anti-corruption commission won't be introduced prior to the election. It's a broken promise from the last election. David, do you think this is a voting issue? Do people notice or care? Clearly the government, you know, they're saying we we can't do it because Labor won't help us. But really, how's this going to go? I think the government argument on this is weak because we know that they've had more than three years to do this. It was promised before the last election. It was taken to the election as a commitment and not delivered within the full term of Parliament. So no question, that's a failed um, promise. I don't think it rates with voters as much as other issues. And I think this is shown in polling. um, And I think it's also common sense. Management of the pandemic is critical. Uh, Management of security in the economy, they're fundamental. However, when I talk to people in this building at the moment, they know that the integrity question does cut through. It cuts through, maybe not in regional Queensland, where the Nats think that they've got a lock on some of those seats, but certainly in urban seats and certainly in some of those seats where moderate Liberals are under challenge from independence. So it is a serious issue at the election and it's one that can change seats and can turn against the government. I mean, I think that the government knows this because they actually have a draft plan, um, admittedly an inadequate integrity commission in the eyes of many, but they have tried to have a face-saving exercise on this front, but they haven't been willing to put it to a vote. And I think that was a miscalculation, a mistake. Oh, yeah, but David, I mean, the face-saving exercise, when you say, you know, criticised by some, criticised by many, there's mm. been oh, well, parliamentary yes, inquiries into this where hundreds <laughs> and hundreds of the um, submissions were pointing out the flaws of the government's model and yep. the government has not shifted one thing. So it's a phony effort, isn't it? I mean, they know that the the proposal they've had in draft form for three years now is not going to get the support. Now, the, the key thing there is, yes, when Scott Morrison waves around the integrity bill that he says he's got, mm. I went down to the tables office of the parliament and I said, please show me what he's been wavering around. It's oh, the same it. draft <laughs> model that they had more than a year ago. So nothing's changed, nothing's moved. But they haven't even been willing to put it to Parliament to then debate amendments because of this view within the Cabinet, which we now know and is confirmed, that they don't want to put it to Parliament because they fear that then then it would be amended in a way that they cannot accept. And that highlights the refusal among senior ministers um, to accept an integrity body with real teeth. 
Uh, so all the changes that integrity advocates argue for, the government's just not willing to do. Things like public hearings, uh, the ability of the Integrity Commission to launch its own investigation. So it decides when something needs investigating rather than something being referred to it. These are fundamental. They're in the states, but the feds won't do it. So we know that there's a strong mood in the cabinet where they don't want that scrutiny. Look, this, this week, these issues of integrity kind of turned in, a, in an unusual direction. Independent Zali MP for Warringah, Zali Stegall, has been really a vocal proponent of a National Integrity Commission. Uh, but she came under fire for failing to properly disclose a $100,000 donation from a constituent who also happens to be a significant investor in coal. Now, of course, she campaigned on climate action, which is why that's interesting. This week, I spoke to Zali Stigl on RM Breakfast. She apologised for her mistake, but said it highlights the need for political donation reform. And David, she felt like your paper did a hit job on her as well. Um, I know you contest that it was a hit job, but clearly uh, there is a sort of circling around the independents, right, to sort of expose them at the moment. They have to be subject to scrutiny. I mean, that's the way it works. Um, and just because that they're, they're independent candidates coming in, it doesn't mean that they, that the bad guys in the majors, you know, have to cop all the scrutiny. It's life's sure. not like that. And look, one thing about this is, it's what happened here is a sort of a fundamental issue that needed to be highlighted. The name of the coal millionaire's family, John Kinghorn's family trust. The name of that family and its donation was not mentioned in the October 2019 disclosure, not, not mentioned in the early 2020 amendment to that disclosure. And the name was only revealed when the AEC did their compliance investigation. That's a very bad look. So it's bad on disclosure grounds. And I think there is that question for Zali Stegel to answer about accepting money from somebody who's made their fortune from coal. Now, I think that she had a very good answer on that. Mm. Yeah, that, I did too, actually. <laughs> but but the, the integrity question, the transparency, the disclosure question and the timing for me was really fundamental. Yeah. And I didn't think there was any doubt that that was a story and actually a very good front page story. For those who didn't hear her answer, it was something along the lines of, you know, are we, you know, just because someone has invested in, in coal or fossil fuels in the past, does that not mean they can't then use those proceeds to support um, climate campaigners? And we've, of course, seen the same argument with Twiggy Forrest, who's big time in yeah. green hydrogen, for instance. I thought that was a, a valid totally answer, fair. but it doesn't invalidate the um, political donation rules and the fact that this was a clear breach of the rules. And can I just say something now, because, of, uh, you know, here's my opportunity to make the point. Yes, she didn't like our story in the Herald. I talked to Alex Turnbull yesterday about a donation he made that wasn't disclosed until years afterwards. He wasn't happy that I was writing a story about that. But I'm also writing a story about a, a failure to disclose at the Nationals. So, you know, keep in mind there are pots and there are kettles and they all mm -hmm. cop scrutiny. Yeah, and, and look, um, hats off to Zali Stegall. I said it on air too for coming and answering the questions, right? Um, people can make the determination um, and when... This happens for the major parties. They need to come on and answer the questions too. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes they do, mm. but sometimes they don't. And I think that's a valid criticism. Yes. Look, look. speaking of Zali Stegall, the Liberal Party is well and truly under siege by independents in some of its blue ribbon seats. In New South Wales, the seat of Willoughby is still in doubt. Um, we're recording this on a Thursday morning. I don't know what the outcome will be, but this is from Saturday's by-election. Liberals suffered a 19% two-party preferred swing to independent Larissa Penn. What's interesting about this is uh, this independent wasn't well financed. It was a quick campaign 
hand-painted signs. Her volunteers had hand-painted signs. That's how well, not well-funded it was. Right. A lot of the interpretation now, you know, analysis that, you know, there aren't federal implications, but I don't know. I'd be pretty nervous if I was Trent Zimmerman in the, um, in the North Sydney electorate, uh, David, and I'm sure others are too, right? What does this demonstrate? Demonstrates the level of frustration or even fury against government. Um, And I think we can't be sure whether that translates federally, but we do know that at different stages of this pandemic, um, incumbency has been an advantage. Well, maybe it's not now in the third year. Maybe, maybe there is a mood change. I think there has been a significant change in sentiment after the Omicron summer, and that's turned people against Scott Morrison personally, strongly, uh, and it's also really hurting the government. And I'm very curious to see how that plays out at a federal level, We could be seeing a taste of that in this state by-election because, again, a lot of things are about pandemic management, whether you're state or whether you're federal. One point that's been made to me is that the independent would have been clearly ahead if the Greens had um, had handed out a how-to-vote card uh, giving preferences to that person. Now, I I haven't verified that by looking at the booth-level data and so forth, but it it is another reminder of how close that contest Mm. is and how preference deals are really going to be so fundamental when yeah. we look at those urban seats where the independents are running against Liberals. The federal government too, or the coalition, come the election time, as you say, Larissa Penn in, the, in this state by-election will it be very, you know, not so high profile, not well-funded. The government's mm. going to be up, up against some very um, well-funded independent candidates with higher profiles. Allegra Spender in Wentworth is one. Zoe Daniel in Goldstein, for instance. There's a, there's a raft of them. But, David, how can the government combat the attacks from the, let's call them the climate independence on its left flank, while also taking on Labor in the suburbs and, and, and in the regions, don't forget, where One Nation and Clive Palmer, for instance, are running. Clive Palmer, the UAP campaign, is massive if you drive anywhere out of the, the capital cities and drive through anything that looks like rural and regional Australia. There's a massive campaign going on there. And you can see that in some of Scott Morrison's rhetoric on vaccines where he's, he keeps having to make the point for clear political reasons that he's not in favour of mandates and mandates are the job of the state governments. So it's a don't blame me message Mm. to that Palmer constituency. Uh, So he's got to tread a fine line and we will be watching during the campaign for for the obvious political tactic, which is to say something in Queensland and a completely different thing in the, in the suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne. That's going to be part of the dynamic. Also, it's probably worth noting on the way through, the Liberals are unready in some of these areas. They still don't have a candidate against Zali Stegall. It's amazing how, how unready the New South Wales Liberals are in some of these seats because they can't win the election alone in Queensland. They need to take seats from Labor in New South Wales and they're well behind on that, on that task. And that, yes. my friend, is another story. <laughs> David, <laughs> thank you as always for a fabulous, giving us a fabulous time in the party room. Thank you both. It's great to talk. See you, David. See you. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time. This week's question comes from Julie, who writes, Given the government will be campaigning on the economy, how do you make sense of the disconnect between national and international economic trends and the fact that most people's day-to-day lives hardly reflect improvement? 
Mm. Yeah. Well, it's a good question. I think it's a question that politically um, Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg struggle with every minute of every day and that's why we are hearing, well, apologies, certainly close to apologies and regrets uh, at the moment from both the Treasurer and the Prime Minister acknowledging that these have been hard times. These have been hard times for people. I imagine it's a bit frustrating for the Treasurer because on the one hand, Australia is in record levels of unemployment and we're heading towards unemployment having a three in front of it. I mean, that's almost miraculous to quote Scott Morrison. Mm. Well, not exactly a quote, but he does believe in miracles. Um, uh, You know, that's an incredible achievement. And yet, why do so many people feel disgruntled and why do so many people feel like they're doing it tough? Well, I think if you walk along any high street of any suburb, you'll still see a lot of shops and businesses that didn't make it through the pandemic. There's that on the one hand. Um, There's also the fact that we haven't seen wage increases yet for a long time. And we keep being told that the lower unemployment goes, the more pressure there will be and therefore wages will start to lift. It's not happening, even though inflation, the cost of living is rising, wages haven't risen to the same degree at the same speed yet, but the Treasurer keeps saying, you know, this will happen. Uh, there's, it's, it's also a confusing conundrum because we are also being told that there's, get this figure, $464 billion in private household savings just waiting to be tipped into the economy. And that's one reason why the, the, the Treasurer has such a skip in his step, I think, because that is going to money, once it gets spent, will stimulate the economy and spark really strong growth. How can there be that much in, in private household savings accounts and yet people still aren't feeling confident? Um, I think that's just a reflection of these uncertain times. I mean, we thought we were all going to be out and about for Christmas, all of us moving around. Then Omicron hit and we slammed shut again, even if even if it's not a literal lockdown, it was a sort of a, a self-imposed lockdown. So I, I just think it's the uncertain times, uh, depending on matters in Ukraine of two, that could add to uncertainty. So I, I think that's the explanation for it. I think and it people could are, change. Pe- yeah, it could. I mean, but there's the, else, the looming issue of interest rate rises too, right? They haven't happened, but yeah. people are probably feeling very nervous about that. So whopping mortgages, uh, yes, really, we're going to see some people get into strife, I suspect, because of that. I just think mm. it's sort of a time, yeah, of great uncertainty, right? There could be a positive economic story to tell in coming months, but there is a great feeling of trepidation among people and you can feel it. I think you're dead right, Fran. Okay, well, Julie, thanks for that question. We love getting your questions, so please send them in. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. Fran, you're off on a special assignment I can't mention, so um, I'm hopefully going to be in your feed with some other host next week, but you'll be back. Yeah, I'll miss your PK, but yes, can't say too much. Oh, you never can. That, that's it for The Party Room this week. We'll be back in your feeds next week. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.